know, I don't know if Jackie's awake, but if everybody else is awake, it'll be helpful. We are going to do number three of four or five uh, sessions on the temple vision. And as we're talking about the temple vision in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, uh, my view on this is different from most people's. So, sorry. Uh, basically, if you go on YouTube, you can hear what everybody else has to say. There'll be a hundred guys who will tell you that the temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48 is a millennium temp, the millennial temple that Christ is going to build during the millennial reign. And uh, so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit tonight. Next time I'll, we'll finish out the rest of the, the four chapters. We got all the way to 44. I would encourage you during these weeks, read Ezekiel 40 through 48. And, um, and then I want you, as you read it, to read it um, and, and try to pay attention to the things that are repeated, the stuff that keeps coming up. The, you know, you and I, if we were reading a chapter, let's say, for example, we were reading a chapter on the foundation of the temple at the time of Solomon. And it said it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. And then they said this temple was dedicated in the seventh month. On the seventh day, are you catching uh, something that seems to keep coming up? Seven and seven and seven. Now, I don't believe that's on accident. And I think there are things that the author is, is getting across to us when that happens. And so in Ezekiel 40 through 48, we have an abundance of that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that the next time when we talk more about the year of Jubilee and, and why that should matter. There's some exciting things to understand about the year of Jubilee. I'll give you just a hint. You guys all are familiar with Daniel chapter 9, right? In Daniel chapter 9, part of the mathematical prophecy given that goes to the time of Christ is built on 10 jubilee years and in ezekiel the measurements the of the whole temple the whole piece of ground equals 10 jubilee years so you look at it and you go you think that's accidental and that 10 jubilee years basically from ezekiel or from daniel from the countdown when daniel says to begin counting brings us to who Jesus, standing in the temple, coming into the temple and saying, hey, my father's house is supposed to be what? A house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You guys are familiar with it. He cleanses the temple. Now, if you've been with us through Ezekiel, you know that Ezekiel chapter 1, the glory of God left the temple. The glory of God is there in the refugee camp with Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God coming to Ezekiel in the throne chariot. And Ezekiel is thinking to himself, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be where? You should be back in the temple in Jerusalem. But the Lord, through the prophecies that Ezekiel is going to share, is telling Ezekiel, Jerusalem's done. I left that temple. That temple's going to be destroyed. The next time the glory of God enters into the temple is when Christ comes in to cleanse it. Then what happens to Christ? 
They receive him, and he rules and reigns as king, right? No, but that's not what happened. So they reject him. So we read, when Christ leaves the temple, he says, See then, your house is left to you desolate. It's empty. John chapter 2, Jesus is going to start pointing our attention away from a building. And so those are some of the things we'll be focusing. We'll focus on some of those next week and try to bring it all together and tie it up in a neat little bow. But, uh, but today I, I want to talk about why just looking for a literal building has problems. Just You guys know that just because everybody says something is so doesn't make it so? Right? Uh, like, for example, um, if you get a vaccine, you'll never get COVID. Is, is that so? It might be so for some people, right? Do you believe everything everybody says? So when we, when we come to this, I just want to challenge you to um, consider what the scripture says. Don't consider what I say. What I say, I'm just like all the other voices. You consider what the scripture says and what, does, and what the scripture lays out for. So first, we're going to start with the negative arguments against a literal temple. So we're going to talk about some of the problems. Two weeks ago, we read through it all. So you remember all the measurements, right? So we read through it all. Now I'm going to talk about the holes that you didn't notice because as we read through it, you get dull of mind and you think measurement after measurement after measurement after measurement, I don't need to listen to this at all, right? And so, but the argument will be, well, it's so detailed, it must be literal. So let's, let's take a look at it. When we look at Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's no instruction to build the temple. Ezekiel is called to go measure a temple that already exists. That should be important for us. This is not a temple that he's called to build. That Anywhere in Ezekiel does God give a command to build. In fact, the only command he gives is in 43, uh, verse 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. Now, that's a strange way to say things, isn't it? It's almost like he's saying, but pay attention to some of these measurements. There is something here. There's something here that we want to be able to see. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, the arrangements, the exits and entrances, that is the whole design. Make known to them as well the statutes, the law of the temple, and its whole design and all its laws. Write it down in their sight. So they may observe all its laws, all its statutes, and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. That's the only command in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And that's a command to be obedient to the law of the temple, which we're going to talk about. And, and hopefully we'll be able to see those things a little more clearly. Now, why do I say they're not given a command to build? Because the temple that they're looking at is a temple built by Messiah. This is a temple Jesus builds. In Zechariah, if you guys look there, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Zechariah writes this, Now say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Host, Lord of the angel armies, behold the man whose name is the branch, Ha Nazer. 
Hanazer. There's another word that comes off of that base word, the branch. It's the word Nazarene. So if I said, beware the man that is called the Nazarene, who would you think we're talking about? Uh, okay, so we, for he shall be a branch from his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. What did it say? Jesus is going to build the temple, right? He will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, shall bear royal honor, shall sit and rule on its throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah talks about this temple. The temple in the kingdom of God is built by Messiah. So it's interesting that God would tell Ezekiel, and I want you to go and I want you to measure the temple. No, no command for them to go and build. Just go measure what's there, what has been made. Who made it? The Messiah. The Messiah is the one who has made this temple. And so Ezekiel's challenge, get as detailed as you can. Now, if you're Ezekiel, do you know what's what? You have no idea. You're being led by a guide. And the guide is telling you all these things, and you're doing your best to write them all down. Right? Write them all down. We need to understand the Word of God is given to us as meditative literature. It's not intended to be simple, quick fix, where you look and you find an answer, and you go, oh, ooh, that was easy. Meditative literature requires meditation. I, I know somebody was going to be listening. Requires meditation. Now, meditation, the word for meditation, means it's something we need to chew on, consider, look into, right? We, wanna, we want to, I love what John Piper says, if you bring a rake, you'll always get leaves. If you bring a shovel, you'll get gold. So we can always stay on the surface, but there's, there's a lot there for us if we're willing to be students of, of the Word of God. So we want to be students of the Word of God. So as we look at this, again, some of the, <coughs> some of the negative arguments against a literal temple. Now, I want to say this. When I say I don't believe there's a literal temple, it doesn't mean I don't believe there's a real temple. Those are two different things. I think there's a real temple. And I think the real temple is the church of Jesus Christ. But it's real. It's just not a building made of stone. And we're going to obviously come to the scripture to, to come to that regard. So when someone says, I don't believe this is literal. Like sometimes we get our, our dander up if someone says, I don't believe in the literal seven days of creation. It doesn't mean that that person doesn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, right? Literal means I'm not, I'm not for sure it was six 24-hour days. Now, I'm, I'm totally good with six 24-hour days, so don't go running roughshod over me. But I just want you to understand, literal does not mean God didn't create or that God doesn't have a temple or that the Messiah didn't build it, Right? But sometimes we have to unlearn all the things we've learned because we're so used to hearing it a certain way that it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what the Lord is saying. Okay, here's the challenges. You ready? It's very detailed, very, very, very detailed. Lots of measurements. We read through all those measurements. Uh, next time I'll, I'll give you the total. Uh, but it's something like 60 references 
that go that refer back to uh, the year of Jubilee. So that the scripture I was quoting you about the building of the temple, that's from Kings. We heard seven three times and it started to light us up. So 60, that should get our attention, right? 25, 50, 500, all multiples, all multiples, all the way through. We see it, we'll see it over and over and over again. But there is no dimension for height. Let's say you were going to build this building. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? There's two times the word for height is in this section, Ezekiel 40 to 48. One time it's dealing with the wall, one time with part of the gate. The rest of it, there's no mention of height. There's no mention of a roof. There are things that are absent. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to pick it apart. I'm saying that these are reasons to go, is this really a literal building or is there some other information that's being translated to us? And are we, are we willing to try to pay attention to it? One of the things that we want to understand is detail is not a hermeneutic. Detail is not a hermeneutic, meaning if there's lots of detail, that, that means there's lots of detail. But it, because there's a lot of detail, that's not a rule for how we should interpret something. The other thing I want you to consider is this. Does the New Testament repurpose temple talk? Oh, you'll see it in a minute. We're going to look at it all. So when the New Testament repurposes temple talk, that should, you, you've got Peter, he was with Jesus, right? He's going to repurpose it. Paul, taught by Christ, he, he's going to repurpose it. We're going to see them talk about the temple in a different way. And we often say that the New Testament is commentary on the Old Testament. We want to understand the Old Testament. We watch it, we read it, we study it through the lens of the New Testament. So we want to be aware of that. Uh, there are some issues of what we call disproportion. So, oh my goodness, I got you. I made you guys all pictures, and then I didn't load them in the in the computer huh yes I'd love to show them to you especially right now so you can see the disproportion of the gates okay I don't have a good way to make that happen dang sorry so next time I'll show you some pictures if I remember and if I if I don't forget so so you have uh, gatehouses are 25 by 50 which again, interesting numbers, 25, half a year of Jubilee, 50 full year of Jubilee, just seems different, way bigger than the holy place and the holy of holies. So the gatehouses are humongous in comparison to the, the place where, where worship would be taking place. And when we look at that, there, there may be a reason for that. When we talk to scholars what scholars say is this is odd. It doesn't look like Solomon's temple. doesn't look like any temple that was ever built. Um, but there may be a reason because the, the author, the angel that's taking Ezekiel around and making all these measurements has a purpose behind the measurements. And it's not about how big should the gatehouse be. It's about how many times can I repeat these same numbers for you before you'll go, 
Year of Jubilee? Let me ask you this. What was the year of Jubilee for? The release of all your debts. What did Christ do on the cross? Do you understand why Jubilee would matter? Do you understand why that would be a promise to people in exile as refugees that there's a year of Jubilee coming? And there will be, the, the earth will be centered around worship of the Lord. Because I'm not saying there's no temple. I'm just saying the temple's not a building. Are you guys with me? So that's why I, I just want to try to reiterate the importance of some of these things. There's no ark in this temple. The ark's not there. There's no menorah. There's no golden altar. There's no area for the priests to wash. If they're going to be doing sacrifices, which we're going to talk about in a minute because that's its own little problem, right? But if they're going to do sacrifices, they have to have a place to wash, right? So there's, there's no place for the priests to wash. Well, we, as we go further on, we'll see water flowing from the temple, right? But it's too shallow at the beginning. So it'd be too shallow there for them to wash. And probably that water flowing out of the temple, that's probably meant to bring us a different understanding, right? Then that's where the priests are supposed to wash their hands. We'll talk about that a little bit more next time. Uh, the promised land is arranged in a totally different way. So normally the temple was placed in, in the midst of the promised land, 11 tribes above, one tribe below. Uh, this was the, the setup. But now the way, it's, the way it's laid out is all the tribes surround the temple. Which, again, ought to say, what's going on? Now, again, I, I want to say, what would happen if you are in exile, you're in refugee, and you realize that every human leader you ever had, that has, ever since you've been alive, has been a lousy leader who did not worship the Lord God, who brought the nation under judgment, and now you find yourself in a refugee camp. And then the prophet comes to you and says, there's a day coming when the whole nation is going to encircle the temple of God, and they'll all be focused in worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's laying out for you, there's the whole concept of promise. Everything I've experienced has been the failure of men, but there's a day coming. There's a day coming when that won't be the case. That won't be the case anymore. The other problem we have, we alluded to a moment ago, the return of sacrifices. This is a problem with the entire book of Hebrews, right? If you've been with us when we went through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law was a shadow of things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices ever make anybody perfect? That ever cleanse sin? No, it was a picture. It was a type. What was it all pointing to? It's pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? Now, oftentimes, people who support a literal temple in the millennial reign will say, we're going to do offerings as a, as a means of example, by, by way of remembrance. 
but you realize that the temple's been gone for 2,000 years and we didn't need remembrance sacrifices to save a Jewish person today. Why would we need it in the presence of Jesus Christ? Second thing is, do they not have any Bibles anymore? You and I come to understand the point of offering and sacrifice by reading the word of God, right? Will they not be able to do that then? We're going we're gonna to take all the Bibles away? Maybe. Uh, you know. I'm just saying these are questions. How is this working out? Why has sacrifice returned? Hebrews 10, 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until the time when his enemies would be made the footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that being true, I have a question about why there are offerings again. Now, it's not a problem if I'm not talking about a literal temple. Because if I'm not talking about a literal temple, we're going to look at scripture in just a moment, then I'm not talking about a literal offering. I'm talking about a spiritual offering. Peter talked about that. If you were here on Sunday, we started to broach some of those ideas. Well, let's look at the positive arguments then. Did the New Testament repurpose temple language? Jesus said, John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews came and said, What sign do you show us that these things are true? Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his body. Right? Do we know that for sure? The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus stood there and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so his disciples remember that after the resurrection, right? That's what John goes on to tell us. They remembered it. <coughs> Jesus spoke about the fact that his body is now really the temple, not the building over there that they didn't want him in, the glory of the Lord. They didn't want that. Where, where was the point of the temple? The point of the temple was the place where the glory of the Lord would meet in sacred space with God's people. Where does that happen now? And it's a return, listen, it's a return to the Edenic plan. What is it that God did with Adam in the cool of the evening? Where is the Lord God in the life of a believer? He's in you, right? He's with you. He's in you, which makes you what? Sacred space. Holy. A person, a human, a, a being able to commune with the presence of God, do you need a building to do that? So Jesus said, listen, the glory of God isn't in the temple anymore. I'm right here. You're going to destroy this temple, but I'm going to raise it in three days. 
First Peter, this is the section we looked at uh, Sunday, First Peter 2, 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So immediately he's quoting from the Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 28, and he's quoting an Old Testament scripture that's talking about a cornerstone. And Peter says that cornerstone is who? So he's taking Old Testament prophecy about the cornerstone of the temple and saying the cornerstone of the temple is Jesus Christ. He is the chief of the corner. And then not only that, he's going to say, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a, what kind of house? Spiritual house. Are we a literal house? Are we a real house? Yes. We're real. It's a real house, but it's spiritual because you and I are the stones, if you will, of the temple. We'll be a, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Did you see that? We're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Why? Because they come through whom? Jesus Christ. For the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him how? Should we worship you, Lord, on this mountain or that mountain? You remember the woman, the, the Samaritan? And the Lord said, well, the Jews have it right. We're supposed to, you're supposed to worship the Lord on this mountain. But the days are coming when you're not going to do it on that mountain or that mountain. For the Lord, the, our, our Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit. Ooh, is that not real? It is real, but it's spiritual worship. I beseech ye, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Is that real or not real? But it's spiritual, right? God doesn't want us to actually light a fire and climb on it. Is that right? So, so I want you to understand, just because I say that the temple, I'm not talking about a literal building, I am talking about a real building made up of the believers who are going to be the, cent the central reality of the world when Christ returns. And everything's going to be about that. And that's what Ezekiel sees afar off. Daniel sees afar off. You and I see a little easier because we get to look through the lens of who? We get to look through the lens of Christ and see what is going on in Scripture. Well, it's not where he stops. Listen, he goes on. For it stands in Scripture, 1 Peter 2.6. He's going to quote Old Testament Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Was the stone a stone or was the stone a person? Stone was a person. Now, if you go back to the scripture where that's written, it's less obvious. The reason it's more obvious is because Peter is repurposing Old Testament prophecy. And he's saying, listen, you guys need to be aware this is Christ. This prophecy is talking about Christ. Right? Why is it that Peter is able to do that? Well, he's an apostle. That's an important thing to remember. Was an apostle. Apostle was somebody 
that was with Christ from the beginning and who was commissioned to write the New Testament. You and I were not Peter. Can you be sent out? Apostle simply means sent out. Sure, you can be sent out. But there's no such thing as a big A apostle. You're not Peter. You're not Paul. You're not John, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Right? We're students. <laughs> you are Mark. But not that kind of Mark. So, but as we come to it, I just want us to understand, there were men, and John writes this in, in his epistles, that were commissioned of God to be eyewitnesses for him, to write for us the scripture so that we could understand what was going on. And they did their job. Scripture tells in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord gave gifts to the church, right? Well, that's one of those gifts. It's one of those gifts that the Lord gave. So he goes on. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In unbelief, you will never see. Man will never find his way. There's no such thing as I was searching and I found the Lord. No, the Lord reveals himself. You, you're not, he, he is the one who is drawing. He's the first mover, not you and I. We don't move first. God moves first. And then we respond. We respond to that reality. So he's saying, look, with, if you don't believe without faith, you're not going to, you'll never see it. It'll never make sense to you. You'll never understand it. It's every unbeliever, atheist person I've ever talked to I just hear this scripture echo in my mind. It doesn't matter what I say. They're like, doesn't make sense. Can't, I can't wrap my mind around what you're talking about. So Peter interprets the stone language from the Old Testament as being the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on to transfer that interpretation to you and I as living stones built up in a holy priesthood. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of, what's he say? The household of God, built on what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see the picture? It's still the same kind of language. Still a living building, stones put together, built on those who have gone before us who provide for us the truth of the word of God. This is being built upon their, their testimony. <clears throat> Look what he goes on to say, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He's, the, he's what holds it all together. In whom the whole structure, so he's still using language of a building, right? The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Well, who's the holy temple he's describing? The church, the body of Christ, right? Who Jesus said in John chapter 2, this is the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. It took us 46 years. Oh, don't worry. It's not going to take God that long. Remember in Zechariah, it said Messiah is going to build a temple. Does it require stones and mortar for Messiah to build a temple? 
according to New Testament language, in Christ building his church, he is building the temple of God. The place where God dwells with his people. He goes on, Paul again, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> Excuse me, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's pretty straightforward, right? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now all those yous are plural yous, like yous guys. Yous, those yous are plural. That means he's talking about the church corporately. All the, all the body of Christ together is the temple of God. Now he also says you singular are the temple of God. So both are true, but the emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 is the, the body of Christ collectively. It's the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's singular. So the collective temple of God is made up of individuals, right? And does not the Lord dwell in you? Does the Lord not dwell in me? When scripture, when, does scripture not describe the reality that Christ said that he would, he would abide in me if I, as, as I abide in him, right? And what, what was the thing that marked the temple? Well, the temple's not just a pretty stone building. What was it to set the temple off? That the glory of God dwelt within it. The glory of God dwelling within it. So here you have the singular uh, concept. Again, language-focused on a connection with the temple. Not looking for a temple of stone. You are the temple of God. This is what they were writing. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Isn't that the same kind of language? Now he's using the word tabernacle. It wasn't the tabernacle a precursor to the temple? This tent, this tabernacle? That's why it's so incredible when you do a study on the tabernacle and realize that every single aspect of the tabernacle pointed to Christ. That literally, I could present a study for you on the tabernacle that would show you that the tabernacle is the body of Christ. Every part. It's beautiful, beautiful picture. And the picture remains as we work our way through Scripture. So again, we're using tabernacle and tent language of a believer. The believers, the believers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. You guys will be familiar with some of this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? We with it? So he's going to start talking with a comparison between unbelievers and believers. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship light with darkness? Look at verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He starts by talking about the relationship between believers and unbelievers. And he talks about righteousness and unright And then he just smoothly works right into temple language. He's still describing the same believers and unbelievers, but now he's using the language of the temple of God. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them 
and I will be their God and they will be my people. That was always the promise of the kingdom. Now you'll also find for me, I have a different view of the kingdom than is traditional, which I have not retaught Revelation because I don't want to get in too much trouble. But when we look at the kingdom of God, I don't believe the kingdom of God ever ends. So I take exception with the language in Revelation 20 that says that the kingdom of God is a thousand years. Well, I, t I don't take exception with it. That's what it says. Yes, that's what it says. My point is, is it, does it really mean a thousand years? Is that, is that what it means? When we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, Revelation chapter 19, Revelation, uh, I think 13, don't, you might check it and make sure, and Revelation 20, all are talking about the same event. The nations of the world coming against the mountain of God to destroy the people of God. And in a moment, in a, in a flash, the battle is over. God doesn't need our help, right? And he delivers us into a new heaven and a new earth where we will live happily ever after. That's how the story ends. All our disagreements will come with how we get there. But everybody agrees on that part. And I would declare the literal kingdom of God is then and it never stops. Is Jesus ever going to not be able to hold his kingdom together? I don't believe so. I don't think he loses it. So when we, when we look at the, the language, we want to be able to grasp what is it that God's talking about. Look, he's saying, I'm going to be with you. Revelation 21 and 22 says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple there. Why? Because the Lord says, I will dwell with my people and I will be their God and they will be my. What did we just read? Isn't that the same words? Isn't it the same words that he's describing for us, that Paul's describing when he says, this is God's desire to make a dwelling with his people, to walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we can talk about a lot of this, but what Paul is quoting from is Leviticus, which is describing the temple. And he takes the temple language from Leviticus and he says, that's talking about the body of Christ. And that's kind of wild, no? Here's an important thing when we come to studying the word of God, we have to be careful. Uh, I have to be careful too. I really try, to, sometimes we get so microscopic that we lose the picture, right? We're so focused in on this point or this point or this point that we forget about what was the purpose of the whole book. And by the whole book, I mean the whole Bible. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you how much the whole counsel of God. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole, it all fits. This is what I would uphold. No matter what system you hold to, the only right system of interpretation in scripture answers all the questions. If it don't answer the questions, we don't quite have it right yet. Are you okay with that? 
Because, you know, they didn't quite have it right when Jesus came the first time. Did you notice that? They thought they knew how it was supposed to work out, but it was different, wasn't it? Are we so arrogant that we're sure our knowledge has increased to the point that we could never be mistaken? <laughs> really? You don't want to sit down in a room with me and ask me to confuddle and confuse you. These are some of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> I'm challenged that I want to know, right? I want to pursue. I want to grow. I want to understand what's going on. And so I, I want us to be able to see these things and so we can understand the importance therein. Second Peter 1, 13 and 14. Peter writes, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Again, the language, is, it's less clear in, in the ESV, but the language again is in terms of buildings. I'm going to put this off. I'm taking off my tent. Paul's going to say the same thing, right? As he's coming to the end of his life, the time has come. This tent's wore out. I'm going to lay this tent down. So they think of their bodies in terms of being temples. Now, we're over. So I got to stop. Don't want to stop because I'm just getting started on the cosmic mountain stuff. And you guys go, the what? Yes. I, sh I should give you a teaser, but I promise next week I'll actually have the pictures that I didn't show you this week. Because we're going to read the rest of Ezekiel 2 because I want us to be able to see the text as we work our way through. But remember, when we're studying the Word of God, it's all of it. Don't, don't remove the books out of their place where they fit with one another. Keep in mind that the prophecies of Daniel are happening at the same time as the prophecies of Ezekiel, which are just after the prophecies of Jeremiah which were just after the prophecies of Isaiah. That, that these guys are all dealing with the same period of time. And they're painting pictures that overlap. And if we're able to, to see them all, hopefully, hopefully we'll begin to understand a little bit about it. Here's, we'll talk about the cosmic mountain next time, but here's, here's what I want you to understand. Psalm 48 Psalm 48 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, it's the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. There's a place on earth where God has set his name. And they use cosmic mountain language to say this is God's mountain. Now, if you go look at Mount Zion, it's not a mountain. It's a hill. But it's a hill where Calvary takes place. It's a hill where man's history has been forever altered. It's the hill upon which the temple resides. It's the hill that God has said, this is my place. Could have put that anywhere, right? And when we look at this, the language in Ezekiel, what you're going to see is God's holy mountain in the middle, his temple uh, there upon that mount, and all the nations surrounding it. And we ask ourselves the question, why are all the nations surrounding it? Why are they all bring, bringing in offerings? And 
But what's the picture paint? That all the world is dwelling together in unity. They're all together under one focus. What's that one focus? To worship the great king who sits on his mountain in the middle. In fact, there's multiple scriptures that say Jerusalem is the center of the earth. Do you know anything about geography? I don't know a lot about geography, but I can tell you this. Jerusalem's not the center of the earth. What does he mean when he says that? It's the most important place. That's the central area. That's where God's throne is. And when he uses language that describes all the nations coming and worshiping and the whole world, what's he talking? He's talking about a redeemed world, a redeemed earth. Kind of like a new heaven and a new earth. Everything, and we don't have to, to nitpick all the little pieces. We need to see the picture. What's he painting? Because before that, you have a world at odds. The whole world coming to Jerusalem to do what? To destroy it. And then when the kingdom of God comes, what do you have? A whole world in submission to God. Did you get the picture? Sometimes we lose sight of the picture, trying to figure out all the little details. And I'm not saying there's not answers for those, those details. There are. But we can't lose sight of the picture for the detail. We need to be able to see it all. So next week, I will try to wrap it all up with pictures and make more sense. And I'll tie a bow on it and then we can start arguing. Amen? <clears throat> Why don't you uh, stand with me? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you so much. I, I truly love studying your word. I want to know you. I want to understand the things that you are expressing to us through the prophets. I don't want to get so hung up on one hermeneutic or another that, that I lose sight of the big picture. That once the whole world was in opposition to God, but through Jesus Christ, the whole world will be in submission to God. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the beautiful thing is, man, if I, if I continue through Psalm 48 and I, and, I, and I look at Micah chapter 4 and I can get to the very scriptures that say they will take their swords and they'll beat them in the plowshares. And they won't study war anymore. Why? Because the king has come. And he shall rule forever and ever. Lord God, I, I just, I pray, Lord, if nothing else, God, I don't want to, I'm not trying to confuse anybody or, or make anybody's head swim. I hope that it encourages them to say, I want to study. I want to know. I want to understand. I want to comprehend. I want to see if these things be so. So God, we pray that you would be glorified. And in this place, we just want to, Lord, grow in our knowledge of you, who you are and what you've done. So God, I just pray you meet us in this place. That you open our eyes and you help us understand with all the saints what is the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
And may you be magnified in this place in Jesus' name. Amen.